My name is Tom Switzer. I'm the executive director here at CIS. And as you just saw, uh, 40 years ago this week, uh, Margaret Thatcher led her Conservative Party uh, to power in Britain. She became Britain's first Brit uh, female Prime Minister. And Thatcher, or Iron Lady as she was later dubbed, uh, presided over a, a wave of deregulation and privatisation and that helped set the scene for that so-called neoliberal era. Um, from the Keynesian mindset, or the Keynesian welfare state mindset, that delivered widespread economic angst, and uh, many of you who were living in Britain in the late 70s may remember the winter of discontent. Uh, from that moment, the UK, as well as the United States, Australia, New Zealand, under Labor governments, uh, they moved to an era of sounder policy and more durable prosperity. Uh, and we at CIS were created in 1976 and we were part of that broad philosophical movement to promote the cause of free markets and small government. So although we weren't politically supporting Thatcher, nevertheless, philosophically, groups like the Centre for Independent Studies and the Institute for Public Affairs, the American Enterprise Institute, the Cato Institute, the Institute for Economic Affairs in London, all broadly support the broad thrust of the Thatcher economic agenda. Today, however, the cause for competitive markets and free enterprise appears quixotic. Polls show rising support for, of all things, socialism, and this is especially the case among millennials. These are young Australians and Americans and Brits who were born in the early 1980s right through to the late 1990s. CIS, in fact, last year published some polling that showed something like 58% of Australian millennials unashamedly support socialism. And those, those views reflect trends in both Britain and the United States. And there are indeed widespread, and some would say legitimate anxieties among millennials um, about wage stagnation, young people being priced out of the housing market, vast concentrations of wealth, uh, inequality, although I think it's important to point out that in Australia, as the Productivity Commission last year, and we did a big event on this subject last September, inequality has not risen in this country uh, as a result of the economic reform agenda that was kick-started by the Labor governments in the 1980s. But back to Britain, today it is suffering a crisis of confidence with Britain's ruling Conservative Party in disarray and against the backdrop of a chaotic British exit from the European Union, there is indeed a real danger that Britain is lurching to the left. And suddenly, the prospect of a socialist Jeremy Corbyn in number 10 Downing Street, that is a very real prospect. So what should today's conservatives and classical liberals, what should today's Thatcher's children, what should we do? How should we reform capitalism uh, to make it uh, more amenable for the millennials? How do we reform capitalism to ensure that the Sanders, the Bernie Sanders, the Jeremy Corbyns, and perhaps even the Shortens don't exploit those anxieties and put in place something much, much worse? 
Well, we have a terrific guest this evening who will put all of this in the context of Margaret Thatcher's 40th anniversary. Uh, Tim Montgomery uh, is founder of the Centre for Social Justice Think Tank. That is not a left-wing cause, it's Social Justice <laughs> Think Tank. He's also the founder of the very popular website, Conservative Home in Britain. He's a former editorial and comment page editor of the Times in London, and he was also the um, senior advisor to Ian Duncan Smith, who was the Tory leader in the early 2000s. He's now editor of a group called Rewrite, that's R-I-G-H-T, Rewrite, a forthcoming web project on how to redefine conservatism in the age of populism. That's called Rewrite. And thanks to the support of several CIS supporters, some of whom are in this room this evening, we've been able to raise some money to bring Tim out for this special anniversary. Please welcome my friend, drinking buddy and ideological comrade, <laughs> Tim Montgomery. Have fun, mate. Well, thank you very much for that uh, warm welcome, and it's a real pleasure um, to be here. And yes, my name is uh, Tim Montgomery, and I am one of Thatcher's children. Uh, I'm looking around the audience and uh, trying to guess the age of uh, average age of you, and um, I don't know whether names like uh, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, Goldie Horn in Private Benjamin. <laughs> Boney M, <laughs> Sheena Easton, some of these names probably mean more to some of you than others, but uh, these were the sort of uh, pop stars and media moguls that uh, uh, children of my age had on their walls, but not me. <laughs> <laughs> I had Margaret Thatcher on my wall when I was uh, <laughs> uh, at university. And uh, I'll tell you partly why. Um, at the age of 11, uh, 1981, my teacher at school, and uh, this might uh, resonate with some of you who are not always happy with the standards of education, told me that nuclear weapons were an evil, that they were a terrible thing and we should be ashamed that a country like the United Kingdom had them on our soil. So an observant, beautiful pupil that I was, I went home to my dad, who's serving then in the British Army, <laughs> and told him how ashamed I was of him. <laughs> you remember that truism that uh, you think uh, when you're sort of 12 or a teenager, how immature your father is, and then 10 years later you think how much they've grown up? <laughs> well, I had all the authority of my 11 years to tell my father how disgusted I was with him. Well, he introduced me to... Uh, the idea of uh, nuclear deterrence. And uh, it seemed actually quite a good argument to me. Uh, I went back to my school the next day, hand up high, and told my teacher that perhaps she hadn't told us the full truth. And, and that really was my introduction to the lady that became the Iron Lady. There was this uh, woman on TV with very big hair and the handbag, and uh, she was explaining things like the importance of being strong in an age of insecurity. And uh, I was a Thatcherite from, from then on. Uh, and looking around the audience again, I think she would probably approve much more of the men here, actually, than she would of me. I don't think the love would have been reciprocated because uh, she was, of course, a pognophobe. She hated beards and famously <laughs> instructed... Um, her then, I think, environment minister, John Gummer, to shave off his beard. 
So uh, without knowing anything, I suspect, about the politics of Greg Lindsay or Tom Switzer, if only on the fact that one had a beard and one doesn't, she'd probably approve of the migration <laughs> to Tom. Um, but her achievements were immense. Not only was she Britain's first female prime minister, and a lot better than the second female prime minister, but that's, a, that's another story. Her list of achievements were great. She conquered inflation. She tamed the trade unions. She reformed labor laws generally, uh, reforms that we are still benefiting from. She returned nationalized industries to the private sector. She abolished exchange controls so that investors could invest in Britain with the confidence that they could get their money out when they needed to. And the consequences of that is Britain is still the premier destination for foreign investment into the European continent. She cut the top rates of uh, tax that were 98 and 80 percent, eventually to 40 percent, unleashing an era of entrepreneurship. She sold two million council homes to their tenants. Home ownership went from 40% at the start of her time in office to over 50% when she left, and eventually to 60%. The taming of militant left-wing governments was another one of her great achievements. And there's no way that London would be enjoying its great second age if she hadn't done what she did at that time. She liberated, of course, the Falkland Islands, from the invasion of the military junta of Argentina. She helped draw a line under the era of Suez and Vietnam when someone doubted the West's very ability to defend itself. She maintained Britain's nuclear deterrent in the face of unilateral disarmers and my 11-year-old era teacher. And she saw in Mikhail Gorbachev that here was a Soviet leader that she and the West could do business with. And in a brilliant book I recommend strongly to you by John O'Sullivan, some of you may know it, uh, John O'Sullivan really puts her alongside Pope John Paul II and Ronald Reagan as the leaders of the West uh, during that incredibly important time. She invested massively in the security and intelligence services in such a way that the IRA really was brought to its knees in the terror campaign in Northern Ireland that allowed her successors, John Major and Tony Blair, to bring the peace process forward. Huge range of achievements that I suspect many of you in this room are familiar with, but by goodness in this uh, depressing age it's good to be reminded of what conviction government could do. And then of course one of her greatest achievements was Tony Blair. That's something uh, she herself espoused. In a sense, you know, political parties aren't just competitors, although they obviously are. They're partners and it's very difficult to have good continuous government if the, op if the opposition will seek to undo everything that you've done. And actually the reform and the modernization of the Labour Party, uh, forced by her three consecutive general election victories, was part of her great legacy. But uh, as I think Margaret Thatcher would recognize, there is no job that is ever finished. And uh, as we know from uh, uh, Tom's introductory remarks, the Labour Party is not quite what uh, it was under Tony Blair at the moment. I want to talk about two main things in the, in the time that I have with you, then perhaps we can enlarge in the Q&A with Tom and, and, and from the floor a little bit later. And the first of all thing that I think I'd like to uh, share with you um, is about a misconception of Thatcherism. 
and how important it is that we correct that misconception. And then uh, the final thing uh, theme I want to develop is what she would uh, think and what we should think about the reform of, of capitalism. And it flows from that first idea of getting Thatcherism right. Uh, I'm very struck by the amount of culture that our two nations share. And uh, we have a lot of uh, common cultural characters. I don't know whether the uh, character that Harry Enfield played loads of money. Did that reach Australia from the UK? Some of you are nodding, some of you are shaking your heads. But he was a kind of Essex wide boy. You know, he used to wave wads of money around and he was called loads of money. Oi you, shut your mouth and look at my wad. Loads of money. This is a journey into money. Loads of money. My name, my name, my name. Loads of money. Loads of money is a shout I utter as I wave my money to the geezers in the gutter. <laughs> you didn't think you were going to get that at a CSS tour to, <laughs> tonight, did you? Tom will never invite me back. <laughs> but in those remarks, and this was a popular uh, entertainment. This was a popular uh, song video that was made off the back of uh, a comedy show he rung. That was the caricature, particularly of the left, of Thatcherism. And it was a true of Reagan as well, the years of individualism. I wave my wad, I wave my money to the geezers in the gutter. There was an indifference to the people who hadn't done well um, out of uh, the Thatcher-Reagan capitalist years. That, that, that was the caricature. And it was a caricature that horrified Margaret Thatcher. And it was reinforced, actually, by something she said. Uh, and uh, some of you may know this quote as well. She gave an interview to the uh, magazine Woman's Own. And it was quoted as saying, she said there was no such thing as society. And it confirmed people's belief that here was someone who only stood for the individual and nothing to do with social responsibility. And the, the quote, actually, which uh, you'll forgive me, I'll read um, in full to understand the context. This is what she actually said to that magazine. I think we've gone through a period when too many children and people have been given to understand, I have a problem, it's the government's job to cope with it. Or I have a problem, I will go and get a grant to cope with it. I am hopeless, the I am homeless, the government must house me. And so they are casting their problems on society. And who is society, she said, and then said, there is no such thing. And that is where the BBC, our ABC, <laughs> cut that quote and, you know, it was taken out of context. What she went on to say was, there are individual men and women and there are families and no government can do anything except through people and people need to look to themselves first. It is our duty to look after ourselves and then also to help look after our neighbour. And life is a reciprocal business, and people have got the entitlements too much in mind without the obligations, because there is no such thing as an entitlement unless someone has first met an obligation. It was that twinning of responsibility and um, entitlement and obligation that she always characterised and prioritised. But it wasn't something that other people gave her the benefit of uh, doubt upon. Uh, my favourite book on Margaret Thatcher is a book by Shirley Robin Letwin, uh, the mother, actually, of Olive Letwin, a current uh, Tory MP. And 
She provides, I think, the most important uh, definition of Thatcherism. And she says, uh, one of the great uh, things that is missing from our recollection of that period is a theory of the individual. And without us as people on the classical liberal, centre-right, conservative um, <laughs> side of the argument, putting forward our own conception of the individual, it would be defined by our opponents. And I think if you went out on the street in Britain and asked what individualism meant, uh, they would think it was something in terms of uh, you do what you want, and a, a, a sort of an individualism cut adrift from family, from society, from history, from a sense of Western civilization, from any sense of obligation. That wasn't Mrs. Thatcher's understanding of what the individual was. Shirley Robin Letwin writes, the individual preferred by Thatcherism is to begin with a simple list, self-sufficient, upright, energetic, adventurous, independent-minded, loyal to friends, and robust against enemies. The qualities in that list are of a very marked stamp. Broadly, they can be described as the vigorous virtues. Vigorous virtues. They are to be contrasted with the softer virtues, such as kindness, humility, gentleness, sympathy, cheerfulness. Thatcherism has always been a vigorous creed in the sense, not that it wishes to abolish the softer virtues, not at all, but it emphasizes the vigorous virtues and if necessary, where conflicts arise at the expense of the softer virtues. The entrepreneur was perhaps the great embodiment of Mrs. Thatcher's vigorous virtues. The entrepreneur who created wealth, who created jobs, who lifted the poor from their uh, a state of dependency or a state of joblessness. But it wasn't the only conception that Margaret Thatcher had of where the vigorous virtues should apply. She also very much believed in the vigorous virtues in, in the charitable sector, in the philanthropic sector, in military, in police force. She had an idea, not of an individual who stood on society's uh, uh, edges, thinking only of themselves and what they could take. She had this idea of a conception of the individual that, uh, that, that wanted to give back to a society that had given them so much, but didn't do so because they were commanded to necessarily um, by the state. And frankly, she was disappointed. This was something she said in her memoir. She was disappointed that when she unleashed um, the forces of enterprise in the 1980s, that British business people and capitalists, for example, didn't give back as much in uh, charitable giving philanthropy as American uh, capitalists did. Her uh, motto, she was a Methodist by upbringing, her Christianity was incredibly important to her. Her motto that she talked about regularly was the Wesleyan motto, earn as much as you can, you know, embodiment of the, of the vigorous merchants, save as much as you can, but then give as much as you can. She b believed that the good individual would always give as well as take. And that brings me to the meat of uh, not only uh, what I wanted to share with you tonight, but also uh, what I'm going to be doing in uh, the new rewrite project that uh, Tom kindly mentioned um, in his introduction to me. She, I think, would be horrified at a lot of what capitalism has become. Uh, uh, conservatism, I think, the best definition I've ever 
heard of conservatism was actually made by uh, one of her successors as conservative leader, uh, Michael Howard. Um, and he said, uh, fundamentally, conservatism and conservatives stand against the overmighty. And at the end of the 70s, the overmighty in Britain was definitely big government, big welfare state, big trade unions. They were the people that were suppressing and suffocating and stifling. But I think in the current context of the Conservative Party, the big, um, the, 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 the overmighty was Europe, a, a Europe that suffocated British democracy. But I think it's also big business. In, in some respects. And uh, I know it's a distinction that the CIS actively draws, but there's a very important distinction that I think we must al always draw between big business capitalism and competitive capitalism. And sometimes I think we give the uh, impression uh, that we are too much on the side of big business rather than the startup business, the competitive business. And I think if you look at some of the uh, ills in capitalism today, I think of the telephone number salaries enjoyed by uh, chief executives, where often there is no relationship between the pay set in boardrooms and the underlying performance of companies, where risk-taking behaviour is perhaps excessively rewarded, but failure isn't punished, but gets a golden parachute. Monetary policies that allow zombie companies to live long after their shelf life. Competition policies that see big business enjoy ever more concentrated market power, divorcing themselves from any loyalty to communities or nation. Landlords who behave like sharks towards uh, young people trying to get onto the housing ladder. An opportunity given to them, I would definitely uh, readily and eagerly concede, by over-regulated land markets from over uh, regulation by the state, but that gives private agents the opportunities to behave badly. And the tardy attitude, for example, of social media companies to the pornographic and terror-supporting content on many of their platforms. Mrs Thatcher would have no truck with this sort of uh, behaviour. She wouldn't recognise this as the capitalism rooted in that definition of the individual I shared with you. She would see this as a capitalism somehow uh, separated fundamentally from ideas of morality and personal and social responsibility. If she was around today, uh, she would not only would she be criticising my beard, <laughs> she, um, and perhaps elements of this speech, no doubt. I'm very grateful she's not here. But um, I don't think she would be in a rush to blame voters today for voting for Jeremy Corbyn or Bernie Sanders or dare I say, Bill Shorten. She'd blame centre-right parties, classically liberal think tanks, business leaders themselves, for allowing a form of capitalism where big business, crucially, often working closely with government in croniest ways, had been able to stifle startups, suppress innovation, and buy subsidies and other favours. We mistook the uh, revolutionary failure, uh, well, after the crash that happened 10 years ago, a huge moment in modern capitalism, I think there was a sense then that perhaps capitalism was in serious trouble. And it turned out that during that period of risk, uh, voters preferred a 
politicians like Barack Obama, David Cameron, Angela Merkel, who would steady the ship. They were so frightened at what was going on, they just wanted a steadying of circumstance. And I think perhaps we mistook what they wanted then for a belief that they were not angry at what the banks did, that they weren't angry at what various capitalists did. They were angry, and I think they, what they wanted, once that steadying had been successfully done, they still wanted a repointing of the economic supertanker. They still wanted uh, a, a new system uh, that wasn't over-financialized, uh, that did uh, sort out the problem of banks that were too big to fail. They did want the problem sorted, whereby uh, their parents no longer think that their, uh, their children will enjoy a livelihood as good as their, their own. They wanted that change, and they still want it. And if capitalists, if friends of capitalists, if centre-right parties, if classically liberal think tanks don't do the thinking to reform capitalism in the grain of the Thatcher, Reagan, John Howard way of seeing the world, we risk handing it over to the Corbyns and Sanders, who will not reform capitalism, they'll overthrow it. Mrs Thatcher, the biggest friend of capitalism we've seen of the post-war era, I would argue, on the world stage, would not be, if she was around today, the uncritical defender of the settlement around us. She would be its leading reformer, and so must we be. Well, just to um, clarify this, we'll get to the issue about reforming capitalism in a moment, but I want to talk more about Thatcher's children because it's fair to say that a lot of British conservatives today, Tim, identify themselves both in and outside the House of Commons as Thatcherite. Mm. And your argument is that um, Thatcher today would not identify with those who describe themselves as Thatcherites. But then again, if you look at the last nine years of conservative governance in Westminster, mm. both under Prime Ministers uh, David Cameron and Theresa May, they distinguished themselves from Margaret Thatcher by championing a one-nation Toryism, big society, mm. which was sort of the softer edges of Thatcherism. Mm. So is there an inconsistency in your position here? I feel like I'm on between the lines here, <laughs> <laughs> Tom's uh, radio show. I <laughs> <laughs> on of all places, the ABC. <laughs> I don't think there is a, a contradiction, but I think we need to recognise as uh, Conservatives, if I could forgive me, I allowed you to talk in the British context, seeing yep. your, your, your question was about that. Um, that. That quote, there is no such thing as society, the idea that conservatism was an individualist, selfish creed, um, has really dogged the Conservative Party. And I, the idea, I think, I think we rely too much on the right for uh, having a reputation for competence. And, uh, and the, you know, the, what is it that Winston Churchill said, that um, if, you're, um, if, you're not, if you're not a socialist at 20, uh, you haven't got a heart, and if you're still a socialist at 40, you haven't got a head. <laughs> <laughs> I've certainly attributed to, to Winston Churchill mm. anyway. Um, and I think there's something about us that we allow that caricature to exist, and sometimes we even promote it. And it means that we go into every election with one hand tied behind our back because an increasing number of people, and I think this is particularly true now, a lot of people are better healed, more upscale. They want, when they go to vote, just as 
how they behave when they shop or when they go on holiday, when they choose an airline. They want to be proud of their choice. And if we're only sort of the efficient party uh, and we're not also a party with a, a resonant moral message, uh, it means we're very weak, and particularly when inevitably the economy turns. I know it doesn't ever turn down in Australia, but it certainly does in, uh, <laughs> in Britain and America. Um, but it means that we're weaker. And I think there's been a wrestling by all of these people that you mentioned, Tom, yeah. to try and cope with that. And I personally think you look at the record you know, that Mrs Thatcher had on returning council home, homes to their owners, lifting the poor out of joblessness, etc., etc. It was an enormously impressive record. And we don't talk about our achievements and our, our vision in moral terms. And I think that leaves us... Uh, really at a disadvantage in political okay, debates. Okay, we talked about caricatures. One of the caricatures of Thatcher, and she sort of um, encouraged this, was mm. this notion that the lady was not for turning. Uh, in 1980, I think it was the Tory party conference, yep. and she was under all sorts of pressure from all these various economists suggesting that she should wind back her monetarism and free mm. market policies and spending cuts. And uh, she gave a major speech at that conference, and she was talking about how this represents courage, uh, conviction, uh, authenticity over, you know, uh, calculation and compromise and mere yep. politics. Let's listen to that uh, key extract from that speech. To those waiting with bated breath for that favourite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. <laughs> The ladies not for turning. <laughs> and of course, she did not turn. She stood steadfast in her belief yeah. and she prevailed. But what, what does that uh, episode tell you about Thatcher? Well, I, th I think you have to understand it in the context of the times. Is that um, throughout the 1970s, uh, she was part of uh, one of the governments, the Ted Heath government at the, uh, in the early 1970s. There was a constant uh, commitment by governments to fight inflation, to bring wages under control. And they, they kept abandoning uh, that um, mission. And it was, you know, a, a Britain really where the trade unions were in charge. They, they were able to dictate um, really what happened in, in the UK economy. And I, I was meeting a gentleman earlier who I think stood for the Conservatives twice in 1974 at the two elections we had um, in that year. And that was an election in which the Conservatives run on the first election was, who really runs Britain? And uh, the country turned around, well, you, clearly you can't run Britain. We're going to get the other <laughs> side the other side in. And that really was, you know, that was the backdrop. This was the era of the three-day week. You know, factories had to shutter in Britain because there just wasn't enough power because the unions were an unreliable provider. It's also to do with the oil price shock. It was a period when I remember when I was at school a nine-year-old, my school closed down for two weeks. We were all sent home because there was just no oil to keep the school warm in the winter. This was a Britain where actually the whole idea of whether it could be governed was on the ballot paper. And so Thatcher was this extraordinary phenomenon whereby, you know, by force of personality, that voice, mm. that hair, those clothes, that handbag, you know, she was trying to communicate to Britain that actually, you know, resolution was one of the words she had on the backdrop of the That's party right. conference one. So it was as much a, it was of course about economics, yes. but it was also about morality again. 
as well. It was about, look at me, I'm different. Hear me, I'm different. And I am not going to bend to these forces. And yeah. the Falklands War and other things that uh, followed and the battle with the unilateral disarmers all added up to this idea of you know, what we now know as the Iron Lady. I know, but it could, and she was a quintessential conviction politician mm. and she had many of her supporters. But isn't there, from a conservative perspective, um, a flip side to this? Owen Harris, who was a, a leading conservative, who was a senior fellow here at the Centre for Independent Studies about 15 years ago, this is what he said about that, that expression, mm. uh, the lady's not for turning. As a general approach to political action, a commitment to hold undeviatingly to a line of action regardless of circumstances or consequences, is foolish and dangerous. Harry's goes on to say, Thatcher's own insistence on doing it her way and her contempt for the collegiate responsibility and compromises of cabinet government were ultimately to cause her downfall a decade after she made that remark. How would you respond to that? <laughs> it really is like being on between the lines. <laughs> um, well, look... Um, if we wanted to get into an economics debate, and I, I am an economist by background, so I'm happy to do that, but um, it, uh, it might be a bit technical. What Thatcher did in those early years, there was overkill. Um, there was an experimentation with the control of money supply. It was experimental, and I think it did get a little bit too theological, and it was, it was overdone. And so there is truth in that criticism. Mm -hmm. But I think the broader point is, and this is, I think, one of the misinterpretations of Mrs. Thatcher since that period, was she was actually very unbending on the issues where she had decided victory was essential, like the control of inflation, like the taming of the trade unions, like, um, uh, like winning back the Falklands, like unilateral disarmament. But actually, on lots of things, the National Health Service, the welfare state, higher education, she realised she couldn't fight every battle. Mm -hmm. And so she actually, she's much more pragmatic than a lot of mm. people remember. And even in the battle um, with the trade unions, um, uh, Arthur Scargill, who's leader of the militant miners' union, they took her on in the early 80s, and she knew she wasn't ready. Mm. They didn't have the stockpiles of coal for example, which were then a huge part of Britain's energy supply. And she waited until 84, 85 to confront them when she sh knew she could win. So there was tactics and yeah. pragmatism there. And I think part of the, uh, the problem of some of her uh, current day disciples is they, they forget that pragmatic mm. side to her. They remember the only the unswerving lady not for turning. And um, it almost puts too pressure on contemporary conservative leaders because they're always expected to be Thatcherite in every area when Mrs Thatcher never was Thatcherite yeah. in every area. And not, not, notwithstanding that pragmatism, mm. I mean, she clearly represented an era. And by mm. the end of the 80s, by the end of her tenure at number 10 and the, the Reagan era, no. Uh, we had Francis Fukuyama, who's been a regular guest here at the Centre for Independent Studies over the last uh, 20 or so years. He coined the term the end of history mm -hmm. in 1989, 30 yeah. years ago, as the Berlin Wall was coming to an end. And his argument was this represented the end point of humankind's ideological evolution, the universalisation of Western liberal democracy, all that. Mm. And in the 90s and throughout the 2000s, this was the orthodoxy. But things have changed. Let's listen to Kenneth Clark. He's the veteran uh, Tory Member of Parliament, he's a House of Commons um, father of the House, and this is Kenneth Clark on the BBC's Hard Talk. I assumed that 1990s, the great normality, uh, the emerging economies were entering the system. We had a rules-based global order. In Britain, we had growth with low inflation. 
uh, great, the, you know, the economy was marching yeah, on. You thought capitalism worked for everybody, and We'd it's not true. We finally got free markets for the social conscience to work. Uh, well, I, you thought I, so, but I, clearly I, not. I fa we, we, we neglected, we failed, and nobody knows how to do it now. How to include the, 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 those people who are not going to be able to take leading roles, whose living standards have stagnated or sometimes fallen subsequent time, those towns, those communities, those regions, such old industrial well, areas let, let which have been left behind. And, 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 That's where the protest is coming from. The Trump vote yes. is very, very similar to the protest votes we get here. So Kenneth Clark's argument then is essentially that the Trump vote in 2016, the Brexit vote in 2016, the rise of various populist movements, in some respects that represents a backlash against globalisation, capitalism, technological change. Mm. Fair point? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And um, uh, one of my great uh, uh, concerns at the moment is that um, we, we are li we're living through an age when uh, economic, technological, cultural, social change is happening at an extraordinary pace. Uh, all it, these changes are interacting with each other and multiplying uh, with each other, uh, you know, distorting and replacing and uh, upturning huge industries in you know, huge parts of, of the country, um, of the world. And uh, so many newspapers, media organisations, political parties, uh, dare I say think tanks in this august uh, company, think exactly the same as they did before all these events and changes took place. Now, you don't give up your principles. You know, principles are, you know, are permanent. You, you, you have fundamental moral beliefs. But... I think when we are seeing all these populist democratic um, rebellions around the world at the moment, and if everyone thinks exactly the same and have exact or exactly the same set of priorities after all these changes and, and upsets, then I think there's something intellectually dishonest. I think there's a, there's a, there's a closed-mindedness to facts and realities. And you know, one of the, the first things that um, the Rewrite uh, Project uh, that I'm launching will do will be asking conservative capitalist classical liberal figures is just to say what where have you changed your mind what you ch what given the, the the facts have changed what what have you changed your mind about mm. in the last few years because i think we won't get over this period we won't manage it successfully if we don't have that openness and i see so many incentives from donors from narrowcast media is actually forcing people to never deviate from positions that they've they've ever held and somehow we need to create an intellectual and cultural climate where you can have much more reasoned yeah, and open I, debate. I must confess I think I've been one of many people who have not quite taken seriously the concerns of a lot of millennials who say mm. they embrace socialism mm. and that they have contempt for capitalism because they will blame at least in this country that they're being priced out of the housing market there's wage stagnation they can't get ahead they're upset mm. about vast concentrations of wealth so there's that but then there's also the condescending attitude of many metropolitan sophisticates towards people who vote for you, Donald Trump, yep. or your Brexits. And you and I were at an event at the Union Club on Monday night, and you heard me debating Karen Phelps, the mm. independent MP. And I was simply making the point that, obviously, digital innovation is a wonderful thing. It's, it's obviously going to boost productivity. Yeah. But there is a flip side, and that is that there are losers of globalisation mm. and technological change who, who, will be lost, who will be losing out, yeah. and they'll be voting for your Trumps and your Brexits. And I was booed. Yeah. And the audience did not quite get what I was saying. So what does that tell you about? I wasn't one of them who was booing. <laughs> <laughs> but, but this is the point, though. There yeah. are people like me 
who have been quite sceptical and, and yeah. almost contemptuous of the millennials, but then there are many people on the other side of the divide who are very sceptical of your Trumps and people who vote yeah. for Trump. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah, you weren't the only one they were rude to that night as well. No, I don't they, yeah, yeah, right. uh, when I arrived, um, I was talking <laughs> to, <laughs> to someone and uh, we were having a conversation about Brexit. It was with a German uh, who's migrated to Australia and he, he couldn't quite understand uh, why I was a Brexiteer. And then he introduced him, me to one of his friends and uh, said I was a Brexiteer. And the reaction was, oh, do you ever go to the theatre? <laughs> <laughs> and then, <laughs> and, and uh, apparently you're not only a Brexiteer, I was a Philistine <coughs> as well. But, um, okay. <laughs> um, but I, I thought it was absolutely fine. And quite worrying, the reaction to what was said, to how they responded to you, Tom, mm. because um, if upscale, well-heeled people still don't get that innovation and globalization is really hurting some people. And they were completely uninterested in mm. standing back and saying, what do we do slightly differently? Mm -hmm. And mm. my view is that you can't stop innovation, no. you can't stop free trade, no. but I think we need to think a lot harder about how do we change our welfare and education policies? Okay. How do we change the, perhaps the pace of opening well, up Well, give me some markets. examples on how you suggest we should reform capitalism. I mean, how should conservatives and classical liberals deal with this angst? How long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I, you know, this is a, I, I certainly don't profess to have all of the, the answers. Um, but I think things that we should be looking at are things like competition policy. Uh, uh, Bork, Justice Bork, some of you remember, he, was, um, mm -hmm. he didn't get onto the US Supreme Court when Reagan nominated him. But actually, he's one of the most influential uh, jurists, really, in recent American times. And he really argued. Um, against the idea that monopoly and oligopoly was a bad idea. He really became a defender of a lot of big business. I think conservatives need to get back to what Adam Smith told us all those years ago, that uh, seldom do business people, people in trade, ever get together without conspiring against the public interest. Uh, we just had a big um, decision in Britain where supermarket mergers have been uh, blocked. It was a big surprise. It was very unexpected. Um, so I would definitely emphasize competition policy. I should be saying when we're cutting taxes, maybe we need to be doing less cut tax cuts for those at the top of the pile for a period and more tax cuts for those um, at the bottom. I'd be looking at a challenge to the central banks and the monetary authorities. I think they're very focused on what's happening in the financial sector. I think the problem is some of our economies are over-financialized and the monetary and interest rate policies are being set for uh, banks more than perhaps manufacturing uh, sector. Uh, I'd look at much more house building. I'd look at much more consumer transparency. Still, I think labeling in British supermarkets, for example, doesn't really tell you what you're buying in the food. I think that needs to be much clearer. We should be spending less on welfare and more on skilling our populations to um, I think, Tom, that those sort of things that I've mentioned, I really could go on and I won't, yeah. I won't but yeah. I think those are generally centre-right responses. Again, they're, not, they're not left of centre yeah. responses, but they are responses to what the left is talking but about and what most voters are talking about. If you look at the United States, though, Trump has put in place a lot of quintessential Thatcherite policies like mm. deregulation, tax cuts. Yeah. You've got 3.2% uh, economic growth last quarter. Yeah. Uh, unemployment is at 3.9%. I think it's the lowest level yeah. of jobless since man landed on the moon 50 years ago. Um, wages are starting to go up. So couldn't you argue that the conventional sort of pro-capitalist Thatcherite policies still have a lot going for them? They do. And I'm not against tax cuts. And I'm not against de deregulation. But have you seen the American deficit? Yeah.
And I, I don't think, actually, the sugar rush that we're seeing in the US economy at the moment is probably sustainable. And you know, any student of history will, will tell you that, ultimately, nations that get into the kind of level of debt that I think America... I know it's not fashionable to worry about deficits and debt at the moment, but mm. look at me, I'm not exactly the most fashionable <laughs> <laughs> person. I think, you, um, I, I think ultimately, if, we, if America carries on down this path of the federal government getting in the scale of debt that it is, America will get weaker and weaker. Yeah. So I see, I'm afraid, uh, a lot of short-termism in Trumpism. He was, he was ahead of his time in analysing the populist angst in America. Mm -hmm. But I think his solutions are too much like the old, <laughs> the old orthodoxies. Okay. Now, uh, we can talk about economics in the questions, but I want to refer to culture briefly uh, before we talk about these other matters. Um, Thatcher, of course, spent a lot of her time undoing Clement Attlee's post-1945 economic uh, Keynesian welfare state yep. system, if you like. You know, he talked about telecoms, airways, car manufacturer, uh, all these things, these state-controlled industries were privatised. But the, the ideological left's attempts to control the commanding heights, mm. uh, that continued unabated during the Thatcher era. Mm. Question, how do people like us counter the left's cultural supremacy? This is, a, this, is another, this is another huge question. And I think it's true that really, uh, during the 80s, uh, if, if, if the right won uh, the um, economic battle, we'd hardly even fought the cultural battle. And that sort of uh, talk of marching through the institutions, mm -hmm. you know, that the left talked about, yep. you know, that really was um, largely uh, completed. And whether you look, I can't speak authoritatively on Australia. You, you all in this audience will have a, a better idea. But I get the impression that it's similar, that in schools mm -hmm. and universities, in the legal profession, um, in the churches, you know, there's been an awful lot of uh, left-wing uh, infiltration of ideas, and I don't think we've um, we've fought that uh, uh, thoughtfully or tactfully enough. And certainly in America, there are beginning to be signs of you know rich Americans not just putting all their money into politics and business development, but you know more into some of the cultural and educational battles. And also, you know politics and um, economics is really downstream from education and church and uh, education. And so we may have won some short-term tactical battles, but I think by neglecting those upstream institutions and the values that mm. really form how we think, mm. Mm. Um, we're putting ourselves at a long-term disadvantage. And uh, so in terms of criticisms that you could make of the Thatcher-Reagan yeah. era, your question is perhaps right at the top. But it's left a lot of people disillusioned. I mean, many people who support CIS are fretting and wailing uh, that um, there are certain subjects that can't be discussed openly without being uh, denounced mm. as unspeakable. Yeah. And to the extent that those trends continue, this is surely not a good thing for civil society. No, it, it, it isn't. And um, Trump, more than anyone, understood that. Mm. He understood that um, people weren't being heard by the by the elite media. And it was, it was the cry in large part behind Brexit mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. People thought in, uh, that the European Union was so remote from them, you know, they, they could, it didn't mm. understand their concerns. And they felt the same about London. You know, one of the biggest divides in the UK uh, now is between England and the rest, uh, London and the rest of England. I live in Salisbury, 
Um, you may have heard of it. it's been in the news <laughs> recently. I, I haven't brought any perfume with me uh, from Russia, so don't worry before you all rush for the exit um, uh, doors. But um, it's like living, they are different places. And mm. this, this gap between uh, the center and the rest of the... And it's David Goodhart called them the somewheres versus the anywheres. Yeah. And who, who uh, edits you know, the BBC news bulletins? Who, who edits ABC news mm -hmm. bulletins? Mm. They don't go to church. Mm. Uh, they've never really been involved in the world of business. Uh, they, um, they're metropolitan, probably better educated. Yeah. They certainly didn't vote for Brexit. And however much I think those people try to understand and represent everyone yes. in, a, in a country, they can't because they don't really know uh, how difficult it is to make, you know, make, a, uh, make a wage bill at the end of the month. If they haven't ever had to worry about doing that, they don't know how religious people think about same-sex marriage because they, they're automatically in favour of it and therefore they assume that anyone who opposes same-sex marriage must be a bigger, you know, or, yes. or something like that. That gap in cultural understanding is, is driving, I think, a lot of And that explains why the Brexit issue goes beyond the ideological left and right. So you'll have many conservative Brexiteers, obviously, who, mm. who, who oppose Brussels, but then you'll have a lot of Labor voters, like 7 out of 10 Labor constituencies, voted to leave, correct? That, that, that is correct, yeah. yeah. And um, uh, we are you know, potentially in, on the edge of a realignment of British politics. I think it's too soon to be sure that that realignment will happen. But now, um, you know, huge numbers of Labour voters, but not many Labour MPs, want to leave the European Union. They, they, they feel it's a, 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 an institution that is completely unable to understand the struggles that, that they're going through. And something is going to give, because that identification with Brexit, leave or remain, is much greater now than a party political affiliation. Yeah. It's a real, you know, it sums up the cultural yeah. divide. Now, on Brexit, just quickly, uh, Br Thatcher, of course... Um, do, we, do we have to? I, I thought I'd come to Australia to escape Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> well, the paralysis <laughs> continues. But Thatcher, um, many people may not know this, but she supported Britain's inclusion in the European economic community or the common market mm. in the mid-1970s, along with Kenneth Clark, whom we yep. just heard. Um, and many people today say... If Thatcher were alive, she'd be a leading Brexiteer. Does that make sense? I, th I think so, because wh when the UK joined the European Economic Community, um, we were thought we were joining a common trade area, and that's what we were repeatedly told, or certainly uh, the voters of uh, 1975 were told when the referendum was held. But the European Union has changed a lot since then. You know, it's, it's integrated. And frankly, that was always the, what the founders of the European project saw uh, as necessary. With the euro, with uh, open borders, and um, with more and more power to the European courts, uh, the, you know, the European Union is on its way to being the United States of Europe. And that isn't what Mrs Thatcher mm. wanted. It isn't what British people voted for. And so although this divorce process is hard, and it's much harder than a lot of us leavers expected, I think getting out of it before it gets much closer to that Euro United States of Europe is, is, is a good thing. And um, it's why, uh, although uh, the process has been hardly anticipated, I certainly don't regret my own personal vote for leaving. And the opinion polls suggest that most people who voted leave absolutely would vote leave mm. again.
if there is a second referendum. Now, we have local elections in Britain in, I think it's early Friday morning our time. Mm -hmm. European elections, parliamentary elections are taking place, I think, May 21, 22. Yep. Europe, Britain, of course, is contesting those elections because they're still part of the European Union. Unbelievably. Um, given things the way they are, um, you've got Nigel Farage's new party called Brexit. You've still got UKIP. Mm. In election systems where it's first past the post, not preferential voting like in Australia, yeah. does Brexit ultimately mean the Conservative vote is so splintered that this opens up a way for Jeremy Corbyn? That is the real danger, uh, Tom. And um, uh, forgive, for, forgive me for those who were here yesterday at the talk that we did have on, on Brexit for me saying this again, but uh, you know, I've been a Conservative all those years since I had you know, Mrs Thatcher's poster on my on my wall, and um, but I'll be voting for the Brexit Party in the European elections. It's the first time I won't have voted Conservative, and I just think the the Tory failure, Theresa May's failure to deliver Brexit, is just such an absolute failure of competence as well as of trust, a broken trust with the electorate. Mm. I don't think that sort of failure can go unpunished. Um, and the challenge for the Conservative Party will be. Once the and, and it's fifteen percent in some opinion polls at the moment. You know the Conservative Party won forty percent at the last general election. You know, that's how bad it is at the moment in the UK. It's it's as existential in, in some respects for the Conservative Party. Uh, the Conservative Party can the Conservative Party put itself back together after this? Um, and I think it will be have to be under a new leader. Yeah. Um, I hope it's under a new leader quickly. Um, can it um, put itself back together? Because if it doesn't and the right is split, Jeremy Corbyn could become Prime yes. Minister on... Because you said the first-past-the-post system, yes. he could become... We don't have your preferential mm -hmm. voting system. You know, he could become leader on 33 34 35% of the vote. And so we will have the most red-wing form... Red-in-tooth-and-claw red, red form of socialism imposed on Britain by barely more than a third of voters. And, and this is a question I asked uh, Daniel Hannan, who gave our John Benython lecture last November. Mm. Dan, of course, is a distinguished conservative intellectual who was a leading Brexiteer like yourself. Mm. And I asked him the question that if indeed you do get Brexit eventually, and the deadline is now October 31 or Halloween, um, <laughs> but if we, do, if we do indeed get Brexit and you have a Prime Minister Corbyn, mm. doesn't that make it easier for Britain under Corbyn to impose the socialist regulations that he wouldn't be able to do if, you, if England was, if Britain was still part of the European Union, it does. And what does that tell you? <laughs> well, I think it tells me <laughs> that um, <laughs> we need to win the next election. <laughs> and you're voting Brexit. <laughs> I, I think it tells me that we need to do Brexit because if, if we don't do Brexit, the Conservative Party will be punished badly. Um, but it, it, now. Uh, but it, yeah. But it, but, but ultimately. You know, it's about democracy. If the people vote for mm -hmm. that, that, that they, they should get it. But it also pinpoints the fact that, unlike, for example, Australia, Britain's democracy doesn't have the sort of constitutional checks and balances that it needs. You know, we don't have a constitution. And it is a little bit too easy to get. The House of Commons is a very powerful body in the UK. More or less, what it says is what happens. And I think we need to think a little bit more about more devolution, uh, perhaps uh, reform to the House of Lords so that it's more of an amending uh, chamber. Because, yeah, we could have an extraordinarily radical extreme government mm. elected on only just a third of the vote okay. without that European check either. Indeed, indeed. Okay, thanks, Tim. Uh, now it's time for Q&A. And our first question will come from David Samuel. Now, David, if David could put his hand up so we can get the mic to him. David is an Australian, but he actually contested the 1974 elections and the 1979 elections as a Conservative parliamentary candidate. David. 
Good evening, gentlemen. Thank you very much indeed for your speech. Uh, I, I did feel that uh, in, the, in the speech part, you've left out any reference to uh, Brexit and to the European Union. Mm. And it only was after when you were sitting down with Tom that that, that started to come out. Yep. Would you, first of all, agree that um, in the early days of Margaret Thatcher's prime ministership, she was very much uh, an EU orthodox. She actually believed in everything that the EU stood for and that it was only very slowly over a period of years that led up to the famous Bruges speech mm. that I hoped you were going to mention, but uh, as you didn't... The Bruges speech in 1988. <laughs> 1988, mm -hmm. September the 20th, 1988, which was really a turning point, not only for her, but for everybody in Britain that did not want to see uh, more and more power being handed over to Brussels. Yeah. And in that speech, the, probably the, uh, the most memorable sentence was that we have not turned back uh, the frontiers of socialism in this country to have them reimposed at the European level. Yeah. And from that moment on, will you agree that m she was really signing her own death warrant because of the <coughs> vested interests, both in the, in the Conservative Party and in the country generally, that was determined to see her out of office and replaced with somebody who was more amenable to the dictates of Brussels. Yeah. Well, I agree with everything that you've said, and forgive me if I didn't focus on Europe in the, in the speech, but I think part of my angst at the moment is that in, in the UK, uh, the focus on Brexit in Europe is meaning that we aren't focusing on what I think is the big global question of our time, which is the reform of capitalism, the saving of, mm. of capitalism. And in the in the time that uh, I had, I thought that it would be, uh, I would focus on that. But but Europe is fundamental to, to, to these questions. I I agree, and the, the quote that you made is the central, is the central one. And um, it, it it does matter that democracy is closer to people. That's part of the answer of how we manage capitalism, make it acceptable um, to people. Um, and it's, it's extraordinarily, of course, when Mrs. Thatcher was dumped as leader in 1990 by her cabinet, it really was the issue of Europe that, that did it. She was made vulnerable mm. by the unpopularity of what she called the community charge. Everyone else called the poll tax. It was a, for those who don't know, it was a, it was a sum of money that everybody had to pay in the UK towards local government services. And it was the same money regardless of their income. It was a flat uh, tax. Um, and that made her vulnerable. It was the issue of Europe, though, which is why the party moved against her. And, of course, they then thought they'd won. They got rid of Britain's most successful prime minister on that issue. But she really gave the marching orders to the Conservative Party. She was telling them that evolution of thinking that you described. She said, and she was loved by the Tory grassroots and still loved by m much of the country. My goodness, I wish she was in charge of EU negotiations now. <laughs> um, she, 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 she really said that this was the unfinished battle. And in her memoir, she talked about two real unfinished battles. One, she talked about social factorism. Which, is, which was this redefinition, this reimagining of what an individual should be and responsible at the heart of an idea of Western civilization. But she talked about Europe a lot as well. And really, for the time since she left office over the last nearly 30 years, the Conservative Party has been trying to fulfill that task that 
she would have, I think, continued if, if she'd been uh, allowed to s carry on in office, which she would have dearly loved to have. She'd probably still bear if uh, she'd had the, <laughs> had the <laughs> choice. Next question, Satya from the Australian Taxpayers Alliance. Yeah, hey, uh, I thought it was interesting uh, that you talked about how big companies sometimes have too much power. And you mentioned social media companies, but the example you gave was them being tardy about removing harmful content from their platforms. Yeah. Now, we're seeing this call from the conservative side to censor the internet more and more. And every mm. time that happens, what ends up happening is conservatives suffer. So, you know, attempts to criticize immigration, for example, now that gets removed off Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg actually said, I want governments to censor me more mm. because he knows that his platform can put up with it and that quickly. And his competitors were trying to seize a bit more of the public square, give a voice perhaps to conservatives that they don't have on Facebook, mm. are going to suffer more for it. So do you think that conservatives perhaps focus too much on this idea of censorship? Do you think that we should perhaps uh, be more skeptical against attempts to constrain freedom of speech, especially on these private platforms, which are in many ways now the public square? I, th I think we've got to be intelligent about it. But what I would say in response to you is that we wouldn't allow the Sydney Morning Herald or the Australian, or uh, the uh, Australian Spectator to print child pornography on, it, on their pages. We wouldn't allow them to have on their websites, websites that are ISIS recruitment videos. And uh, I don't see why Facebook and uh, Twitter and Instagram that are making a lot of money mm. shouldn't be required to spend more people employed to, 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 to censor this material. And, uh, I'm, I, I, I think what you were alluding to about some of these, uh, you know, they're based in California, for goodness sake. We all know what the values <laughs> of Hollywood are, are like. <laughs> that there is a problem. Nigel Farage in Britain has talked about this. There is a, a problem of these organisations censoring perfectly legitimate views. And so this is, you know, when there isn't going to be ideal legislation that means this is cleanly dealt with. But I think we have to be intelligent. But we, we can't say um, just because... Uh, there's a danger of these um, organisations over-censoring, that that means we shouldn't do something to stop them getting rid of the very worst things. And also, I think, on competition policy, you know, why was Facebook allowed to buy Instagram? You know, maybe we sh the, the, w w Why were these organisations that were already so huge allowed to get even bigger? And I, I think that is a, a real danger to competition and, uh, and an, an innovative uh, uh, internet. Um, next question to Chris Roberts, who's uh, 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 over here, Greg, thanks, a board director here at the Centre for Independent Studies. Chris. Tim, this is a hypothetical. Mrs Thatcher is with us today, and she succeeded David Cameron mm -hmm. and had the task of negotiating an exit following the Brexit vote. Yeah. How would she have negotiated relative to Theresa May? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> You are all interested in talking about Brexit. <laughs> um, I think the biggest... Uh, Mrs. Mrs May has made lots of mistakes, but I think the key thing was... Um, this was mentioned in the talk we, ha we had yesterday, but uh, Britain is a huge net contributor to the EU budget. Uh, we give something like 17, 18 billion pounds net to the EU, more than we receive back from them. And very early in the negotiations, uh, the European Union said, um, we're gonna, we need these negotiations to be in two parts. We settle the divorce bill first, so you agree how much you're going to pay us to leave us, and then we'll talk about what you want, which is the free trade agreement. And Theresa May said, oh, yes, that's fine. <laughs> you know, you, you'll get exactly what you want. We'll sign all the papers, and then 
we'll discuss what we want. No, I don't think Donald Trump would have done that. I certainly don't think if Margaret Thatcher was still around, she would have done that. I think what we should have said then was, look, OK, that's your position. We're going back to London and we're going to prepare for leaving on no deal terms. We're going to leave without any agreement. If in the next 18 months you want to talk, we'll come back. But until then, we're not giving you a penny. We're not going to agree to any of your terms and we're going to prepare to leave in our own way. And I think they would have been scared stiff of that mm, because yeah. the idea of a Britain, you know, low tax, low regulation, completely free of all the EU's intervention, that idea of a sort of semi-Singapore on the European uh, border, that would have frightened them to, to death. And uh, Theresa May thought that if we were nice to the European Union, they would be nice mm, back. Mm. One of the many reasons why I can't wait for her to be got rid of. <laughs> <laughs> um, but on that note, though, mm. uh, Peter Oborn, a mutual friend of ours, uh, a former political editor of The Spectator and The Daily Telegraph, is now with The Daily Mail. Yeah. He was a prominent uh, uh, Brexiteer, a Tory Brexiteer, and he has now uh, done a complete U-turn, and he says that a hard Brexit, which is what you're suggesting should have happened yeah. from the outset, mm. would have been a calamity. And his argument is that groups like Airbus, Jaguar, Land Rover, yeah. Philips, other companies, they've all announced that they will scale back investments in Britain. This is the Wall Street Journal editorial page, yeah. which is a bastion of Thatcherism, if you like. This is what they said in their editorial. They quote officials at the port of Dover, they estimate that for every two minutes of delayed trucks experience before embarking on cross-channel ferries, a 17-mile traffic backup will be created on the M20 highway heading to the port. Now, there's surely grounds for real fears from a commercial perspective. Well, look, if uh, Peter Oborn was here, I would say to Peter, um, Peter... You turn if you want to. <laughs> this lever is not for turning. <laughs> and um, you quote Peter, and you know he's, he is a distinguished. I agree, but actually he's really exceptional. V very few people have mm. uh, 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 have changed. Mm -hmm. And look, there is economic uncertainty at the moment, and the British economy is not growing as fast or as rapidly as it could do if it didn't have this blight over it. And it, it is a blight. You know, we are undertaking a big shift in our geo political position. And until it's resolved, I think, you know, businesses are holding back. They don't know, they don't know what's going to happen. But actually still, even because of that, we've got our lowest unemployment rate since the early 1970s in Britain, the mm. highest employment rate. Mm. We're actually at the moment growing faster than Germany, Italy, Spain and France. Mm. You know, it's not as good as it should be, certainly not as good as America, although that might partly for other reasons not as good as Australia. But actually, given this the real blights that you mentioned mm -hmm. and those real problems, we're not doing so bad. And you know why that is? It's partly because of the legacy of the woman we've been talking about yeah, tonight. Right. You know, her reforms <laughs> to the labour market, to the, the City of London, to the tax system, they really have had long effects. Um, and so um, I'm, I'm not changing my mind okay, that's on that issue. Next question. Yes, sir. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, Tim, I really enjoyed your, your talk. But mm. there's one thing I disagreed with you when you, you found some problems with um, Trump. Yeah. Uh, I don't think uh, Trump's tax cuts, which are adding to a massive uh, deficit, uh, a good idea, nor, nor uh, is there any evidence whatsoever that that's been part of the renaissance in the US economy. I think getting uh, energy right, getting a energy prices one quarter the level of Australia, mm -hmm. uh, f freeing up fracking and all these other things. And I think his political su success uh, is 
in terms of um, that you've been I indicating, that namely cut indicating a wish to reduce these uh, massive border crossings, millions of people cro crossing from poor countries to mm. rich countries, simply to take advantage of, of uh, welfare s state system and in the process destroying it. So, yeah. um, and the same issues I think arise in Brexit. Not only do, do the British people want more independence, but they, they actually like some aspects of their welfare state system. They don't want it completely destroyed mm. overnight. So perhaps uh, you could comment to see whether you, you're really um, okay with myself or whether you have a different... No, I, I, that's a really penetrating question. And um, I, I think the Federal Reserve and other economists would say that the, the tax cuts have made a contribution to uh, uh, the growth that America's experiencing at the moment, but you're absolutely right. You know, fracking in particular has been a huge boost for uh, for the U.S. The shale gas revolution. That's right. Yeah, and lots of other microeconomic reforms. I think we underestimate, you know, the the impact of heavy regulation. And Obama was a heavy regulator. Um, and I'm with you on immigration. Um, and I think that is one thing that um, I, I don't think we're often good um, on the right at explaining. Back back to that argument about moral purpose. There's there's mm. a really good moral argument for control of borders, you know, protecting the low paid and, and ensuring that um, affordable house prices, um, you know, are in the, in the reach of uh, lower paid people. Um, it, a, an argument for border control in those terms, rather than as sometimes it's portrayed, you know, that we're against people coming in of a different skin colour, you know, that's how the, the left portray it. And um, I'm not sure Trump, though, has made that case <laughs> uh, mm. particularly well, but um, I think I'm largely with you in, in, in what you said. Okay. Okay, next question is yeah. from James yeah. Phillips. James. And then yep. Tim, um, on the subject of um, projecting moral purpose, mm. uh, many of your colleagues seem pretty keen on getting on the woke uh, bandwagon. Is that really the best uh, way for conservatives to project moral purpose? And just explain woke. Woke. Just explain woke. Oh, yeah. Oh, so this is the woke, this is the idea of being incredibly conscious of all sorts of bias in society, that white male privilege and yeah. such like. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think there have been some, some pretty um, very strong and vocal support for um, recent um, termination Street. of, yes, yeah. and, and, but also things to do with avatries and the like, some of the yeah. favoured <laughs> uh, woke uh, causes. Is that really the, the best, the most promising yeah. um, moral purpose territory for conservatives? No, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> and well, I, 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 I don't know what I could say. Uh, say uh, we were at a talk that Alexander Demo gave Alexander on Alexander Demo yeah, on Monday, Monday yeah, lunchtime. Right. That was that, that was very good on this. And uh, uh, but I think political correctness, you know, when it first sort of emerged onto the scene, wasn't necessarily a bad thing. I think there was a crudeness in how some people, some of us talked about people with disabilities or people with a different skin colour or, or women. There was, there was a way of talking that people did find offensive. But I think we've gone from where political correctness was a politeness and a necessary politeness to something now where people love to take offence. You know, the, mm. um, it, it's gone from... You, know, you have to tread on eggshells when you talk about these topics. And um, there was a case recently, Amber Rudd, um, a very senior British... Minister, uh, she was making a point of how vile a lot of social media was to particularly women, and she said to people of colour. Now, 
she was making a, trying to make a generous and good argument about how we all needed to be more careful. But because she said people of color and not black people, and black people, you know, is the approved term now, people of color is a banned term, she was, there were calls for her to resign. And she had to, and she apologized. You know, and now you go to America, and I think, forgive me if I'm wrong, Tom, but I think the biggest um, organization that represents uh, black people and Af is called the National Association of Advancement of Colored People. Right, yeah. um, but, in you know, too, how yeah. you keep up <laughs> with all of this, you know, is a very dangerous uh, Okay, now task. we're running out of time. Ray Hood, quickly, yes, sir. Hi, yeah, thanks, Tom. And uh, Tim, I do enjoy you sometimes on Dateline London as the uh, sole centre right voice there. But firstly, yeah, it's always just one of four, isn't it? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> it's yes, a bit no. like the ABC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but it is, it is a good you. show. No, yeah. just quickly, um, a direct question. There was that uh, petition that the Home Office had running earlier this year yeah. revoke Article 50. You know, yep. and there was a lot of press about it. You know, six yep. million people signed up, everything. I actually went online, signed up, signed it as Nigel Farage. <laughs> I gave an old uh, 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 real uh, postcode in the UK and an email and they accepted the vote. And I even got a nice note from the Home Office, office thanking me for <laughs> supporting uh, Mr Farage. Thank yeah. you for supporting, uh, you know, democracy in Britain. There was nothing in even the conservative media or anything about what a farce this petition was. Yeah. I mean, an absolute farce. I mean, anyone could vote in it. I mean, it seemed like any of those petitions in the Home Office you could vote for. So that's just what, what has happened are, about are that. Are you really telling me that a government IT project didn't work properly? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, I, know. Find, I, I find that yeah. very yeah. hard to believe. <laughs> yeah, but uh, <laughs> I know. But just another just general talking point is that, I mean, if you think back to, say, you know, the home rule debates in just before World War One, and mm. where the home, you know, the Liberals voted in on a mandate, we will give home rule to Ireland, which is basically a dominion status, which then the House of Lords said, no, we, you know, they, the Irish can't govern themselves like Australia and New Zealand, no. And it was voted down. And then, of course, that led to, you know, the crisis and then there was reform at the House of Lords, which is basically a people's mandate. They were voted in with a clear mandate to do something. The House of Lords tried to stop it. Now, with Brexit, you have a very similar situation where it's, where it's the lower house, though, basically trying to stop this. I mean, it looks like, really, I mean, Brexit just may not happen. And just, I mean, what is the implications of that, similar to the... Irish situation a hundred years ago. If if Brexit is actually overturned, well, you know, a, a, a massive question. We haven't got much time left, but um, I think I, I, I think there are two main consequences that I fear. One is that you know hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of people voted for Brexit that don't normally vote. This was an issue that really mattered to them. And the time when they turned up and when the political class said, this is a once in a generation decision, we'll implement what you decided. If they don't implement it, those people I think will probably never vote again, which probably some sophisticates in London might quite approve of. Um, but what some of those sophisticates might not so much approve of, or they'll start voting for extreme parties. That they'll so give up on the mainstream that they'll turn to, um, you know, uh, the most unwoke political parties <laughs> imaginable. And um, yes. uh, that worries me. And you're witnessing me. that across the European continent too, aren't yeah, you? We are, yeah, yeah. Well, you, had, you had the big vote for Vox in Spain mm -hmm. uh, just, this, yep. just this weekend. So it's, uh, it's dangerous. And those people who are convinced Remainers who are, pl uh, who are still opposing the Leave vote, they are playing with fire. Mm. Mm. And I don't think they have... Uh, they're either blind to it or they are incredibly irresponsible. Now, now Tim, finally, um, 
we have to finish it up very soon, but uh, you wrote uh, in the immediate aftermath of Theresa May's uh, disaster in 2017 when she had to form a minority government after yep. she lost a lot of seats. And um, you said that the Tory party is on a mission to self-destruction and she's clearly damaged goods now. Yep. And there's clearly momentum to remove her. Um, how can this happen before Brexit and who's the most likely successor? Okay. Well, I'm hoping you mentioned that we have local election results tomorrow. On Friday Britain, morning. Thursday, mm -hmm. Friday morning, mm -hmm. Australian time. I'm hoping that the cabinet will move against her in the aftermath of those elections. Right. Which will be a disaster for the Tories. Yeah, we're protected to lose about a thousand council seats, which is, you know, unprecedented, very unusual in British political terms anyway. And um, uh, Mrs. Thatcher was removed by her cabinet. You know, it, it, that was ultimately what did for her. There, there was a vote in Parliament which she won, uh, and there was going to be a second round, and she went to her cabinet looking for support, and most of them said they wouldn't support her. And at the moment, we have a position whereby uh, the Tory cabinet of that period ousted uh, our most successful female prime minister, our most successful post-war prime minister, but this current cabinet hasn't acted against our worst uh, prime minister. <laughs> and so I'm hoping that that will change very soon in the early hours um, And the likely favourite to replace her. Um, he's really got... Big blonde hair, <laughs> <laughs> and you might know him as uh, as Boris Johnson. And um, uh, Tory MPs uh, have lots of reservations about him. You know, he's got quite a colourful private life, um, and he he wasn't a brilliant Home Secretary. I'm a fan of Boris Johnson, but he, he's a risk. He's got quite a lot of flaws. But when you're 15% in the opinion polls, <laughs> <laughs> you take risks. <laughs> well, he, he's a sceptic of Boris. This is Sir Max Hastings, yep. a veteran editor, who yeah. was his publisher for many years at the London Telegraph. And he wrote in the you Times... You are so well read on no, all no, these No, 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 but this is what he says. He says, Boris Johnson's glittering intelligence, which no one doubts, is not matched by self-knowledge. He sees his place in the nation's history in Churchillian terms whereas others, including most of the Parliamentary Conservative Party, would cast him as Black Adder in a blonde wig. <laughs> 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 Ladies and gentlemen, Tim Montgomery. <laughs> That's great, mate. Really well done. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, thank you, Tim. Thank you, Tim, and thanks to all those supporters who made Tim's visit possible. Uh, CIS uh, is a private organisation. We don't receive any tax dollars. We survive on the generosity of individuals who share our mission. And um, we hope that if you enjoyed tonight and you're not a member, please become one and think of us uh, as the financial year comes to an end. Thank you so much and we hope to see you again. Thank you very much.